What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Dan, welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast. Hey, Cortland. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Been meaning to have you on for a while. We were just talking about how I was emailing your co-founder Rich like two years ago, and he was like, "You should have Dan on instead of me. He's a much nicer, relaxed guy than I am." And so now here you are, two years later, <laughs> oh, talking man. about the story of Dribble. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here to to talk about that and and all sorts of stuff. Whatever, whatever, whatever we can get into, I'm, I'm excited. Maybe the best place to start is to tell people what Dribble is. How would, how would you describe Dribble? Yeah, so Dribble is a community for designers, you know, creative people. So graphic designers, icon designers, font makers, um, you know, that that kind of thing. Actually, going way back in the, to the idea, it was it was more like just a selfish way of trying to see what my colleagues and friends were working on, like be able to look over their shoulder and be like, "What are you doing right now?" You know, and that's kind of kind of how it started. It was it was like, "What are you working on?" Was the tagline at the, at the time. And that, you know, over the years, it has evolved into a home base for creative people and designers sharing their work and like getting hired. And at its core, though, it's always been a a community for designers. And you're being humble to some degree because it's not just any community for designers. It's like (laughs) the community for designers. It is humongous. I think there's millions of people going to Dribbble every month. I've been using it for 10 years just for like inspiration and to go like basically whenever I want to design anything, I go on Dribble. I kind of type the name of that thing, you know, like homepage or like sign up form. <laughs> and I just look at hundreds of like professional, amazing designs and concepts. And I try to absorb like all of it. And then I like come away from that process, like knowing a lot more about what I want, what the options are, et cetera. And it's been like super invaluable for me as a resource. I used it a thousand times when I was designing indie hackers. And so uh, it's not just me doing this, it's designers all over the world. Uh, there isn't any other design community that even comes close to what Dribble has done for designers. It's also a solid business. I mean, I think you and Rich bootstrapped the site. I don't recall ever hearing about you guys raising any money from investors. Uh, it grew extremely quickly, and it wasn't something you just ran for free. I mean, it's expensive to keep a site up like this with all these people. Like You you actually had revenue models. You were generating... Um, I don't know. Have you ever shared your revenue numbers for Dribble or, or ballpark estimates of where you got? Yeah, no, we never, we never really did. And then at this point, I probably can't since I'm not really involved <laughs> in anymore. They probably disown me at, at this point. But um, but yeah, you're right. We t- it was bootstrapped from from day one. And honestly, like <laughs> because of the history and the way it started, it was it was really like a side project initially. And between Rich and I, and it was just just the two of us. Actually, for the first year or two, it was just Rich and I. But like you said too, it it grew quickly, and so we had traction and, and traffic like very fast right off the right off the bat. So let's go back to the beginning of the story. In my opinion, it starts before you even started Dribble because you started another sort of social network, I think 2005, called Corked. And it was like a, a social network for wine aficionados that eventually got acquired by Gary Vaynerchuk, of all people. Yeah, and I can't imagine I that you, you started this social network in like the the mid-2000s and like didn't learn any cool, unique, interesting lessons that you took away with you to start another community in the future. So what's the story behind Corked? What was this? I'm, I'm actually really glad you asked about Corked because not many people do. 
Well, that was a, such a crazy time to start, like you said, to start a social network at that point. You know, Flickr was <laughs> was like a model for us, I think, with social networking and U- UI around social networks. And um, Dan Benjamin and I teamed up to build to build that one. And um, I had just I had really gotten into to wine at that point, and not in a, like an academic way. You know, it was more like a I just like to drink wine and i didn't want to spend a lot of money on it or anything but i wanted to know about other wines that my friends were drinking and like sort of a a a lazy lazy person's way of of learning about new things and and seeing what you know what am i missing out on the the idea was like well why not why couldn't you follow somebody to see what their what kind of wine they liked and read their reviews and and then you know try them yourself and so at the time there wasn't yeah there wasn't a ton of social networking going on at all. I mean there was people were barely um, even using the term social network at that point. Yeah, r- right, exactly. It wasn't it was like such a, a new yeah, thing. There wasn't an industry around it, you know, either. There was just like it was just web designer people and developers making websites. And then, you know, these concepts of like following and since it was so new, we did <laughs> we did gain some traction with it. But at the same time, it's a site about wine. And you, when you start running a site about wine, you start realizing that, oh, you know, if this is, if we go full in on this, this is like our life is wine and the wine business. And that's not really a place that <laughs> I don't think either one of us wanted to be in. So the, the idea to sell it, it was, was natural at that point. The, the, the other aspects of it are great. You know, the building of it, the creative aspect of, of building it and, and, figuring out those UI problems, solving those UI problems and making it fun, trying to make like something that's historically kind of snooty and, and, and weird and make it fun and approachable. That was great. And that, and that was a blast. You know, Gary at the time, Gary Vaynerchuk at the time, he was building his own wine empire with wine library. And, and um, we had worked a little bit together with some advertising and some collaboration on some stuff. And then he, he really wanted it. He's like, I'll take it over and, you know, not much happened with it after that, to be honest. So that's a little bit of a bummer, but <laughs> right, I stumbled upon like some post. I think it was on Gary Vaynerchuk's blog or something about shutting down Corked. Now we had some new wine experience coming after that, uh, and there's yeah. so many people in the comments who were sad that there hadn't <laughs> been much change or hadn't been much development. How did yeah. you feel about that? You know, selling your baby to Gary Vaynerchuk and then watching it sort of twist and die in the wind. Yeah, yeah, it, that was really tough. Honestly, I, you know, I. We had some interest from a large, I'll just call it a large media company. Well, actually a couple, mm. but one of them that actually got, you know, pretty far along in the process of an acquisition. And that took, that went on for months. And this was a big learning experience about how this stuff works. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't know how this, how acquisitions worked at all. And so that really killed the momentum because we, we thought at the end of this process, the site will be acquired and we're no, no longer going to be working on it. And uh, months and months dragged out, and they pulled out the last, very honestly, like the last minute. They just like, nope, we're not going to buy it. That was really, really sucked because not only because it just didn't happen, but also because it 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 did kill the momentum of the site. And and I'm sure this happens all the time, right? I'm sure this happens a lot with with companies where there is some interest and it, it seems legitimate and. Maybe you get far along in the process, and then it all and it all falls apart in the end. And and how do you balance that with actually keeping the company growing and 
I think emotionally it's weird to juggle that, right? Like, oh, in a couple months, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. But then maybe you will if it falls through. And I, we, we just weren't expecting that to happen at all. So I think Gary coming along when he did, I think was like kind of saved us a little bit in terms of, okay, this is another exit that we can, we can, we can handle. And Gary's, he was at the time, you know, building this wine empire. It seemed like a good fit. So fast forward to 2009, you start Dribble, and you're starting this with, I think, modest ambitions. It was a side project, but you have all of this experience having already built a social network online during a time where no one else is really building social networks. So what was your thought process in starting Dribble, and how did that, how did that story go? The idea of it was based on a couple of different things. One of them was I would go to design conferences, and I would see all these folks that I admired and I love their work. And I, the first thing I would ask them is like, what are you working on now? Like, wh- what are you doing now? Because back then, you know, there wasn't, there was Twitter. There wasn't really, there wasn't Instagram at that point that people weren't sharing a lot in general. They were sharing very little. And so there was a long stretch between someone sh- announcing something that they did. And, and, and there was a lot of, a lot less work in progress sharing going on. So I definitely wanted that. And I wanted to answer that what are you working on thing at the time too? Cameron mall on his blog ran a thing called the screen grab confab. And, um, he asked like, he kind of asked the same question. What are you working on? And show like a little screenshot of what, what you're doing. So that was an inspiration too. And, um, and I love the idea. Twitter was also an inspiration in that like this truncation of, you know, you can only show a certain amount, so you have to you have to put your best foot forward and um, entice people to want to see more. So the idea of like a smaller version of what you're doing was kind of born from from the start there. The, the name Dribble was like I thought of it like as leak your work and bounce ideas. <laughs> so it kind of had a double meaning of. How did you come up with the uh, the triple B? Because it's not dribble with two Bs, it's dribble with three Bs. Yeah, that was all because of the domain name. <laughs> I figured. Yeah, yeah, like dribble with two Bs. I haven't looked at it in a little while, but like it was just like a park domain, but nobody could access it or we couldn't get a hold of the person. And I didn't even think to at that point. Actually, I didn't even want to bother because, you know, it wasn't a... Again, it wasn't like we had a business plan where we were like, okay, we're going to spend 50 grand on this domain so we can. <laughs> it was like, I'll just add a B. <laughs> and and we'll be, we'll be going on this tomorrow, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was the reason. And I, I also loved how I was like, oh, add a B, but it's cool because the logo, like, I, I was kind of inspired by the Kleenex box, like the Kleenex logo, where he's just right. like in cursive, like there's these yeah. loops that keep going. And the bees, like you could add as many bees as you wanted, and it still was legible as dribbles. So, this is the designer and the font aficionado when you coming out. Yeah, yeah, I look exactly. At, I look at everything yeah. you're doing. I look at your Twitter profile. I look at like all the things you've done since dribble, and it's like you don't have the same profile as like the typical founder and the hacker that I talk to. Like most of them are like you know proud founder, CEO, you know leader, and you're much more like designer. You know, like I like I'm a craftsman. You know, you really like the craft of being a designer. And the thing about Dribble is it sort of took you from being, you know, quote unquote, just a designer to being kind of like the leader of the biggest community of designers, which is, which is a huge trip. That's a huge difference. I, I realized, and it took, you know, working on Dribble for that long to, to help me realize this is that I just, I, I like to make stuff and I like, I love the process of building things. 
I, I don't love the process of maintaining them, I guess, which is a tough realization to have when you've co-founded a company. And I think that that, yeah. that, that can lead to some, some challenging dynamics with the team. And, and, uh, so there are some regrets on my end in terms of that, like not, not realizing at the time that I should, the craft should be, in Dribble's case, should have been how to manage the company. And I'm just not a manager. I think I, that, I, re- I had to realize that maybe a little too late. So let's talk about like the progression of Dribble because it's not every day that somebody builds a behemoth of a community that comes to basically define an entire industry. How did it go from being a side project to, to being this sort of rocket ship growth community where more people were joining than you could even let in? Yeah, so I think there was a couple things we had in our favor, and and we were super fortunate uh, to have these problems. I'll call them <laughs> the scale problems. But um, you know, one of them is the pool of people that we invited to the site initially. I think made a huge, huge difference. And we sent out like these handwritten postcards. You know, when we announced the beta of the site, I think it was like fifty to a hundred friends and colleagues. You know, fortunately, a lot of them obliged, and they create an account and we sent a t-shirt with it so we had a t-shirt done already you wrote a, a blog post a couple years ago like kind of 20 lessons you learned from dribble and the second lesson you learned was start with a t-shirt yes exactly start with a t-shirt i think i explained it as like you know we had the logo and the concept done first and we used that t-shirt to send to people that we wanted to check out the beta and it kind of guilt, guilted them into trying it out. Because, you know, if you send an email to someone, hey, check out the site, you know, they might they might check it out. They might not. If you send them a T-shirt and a card, they're probably more likely to be, all right, I better, I better look at this, go. you know. So that was, <laughs> that was the concept there. But these people, you know, they were, they were wonderful. That first crop of people immediately uploaded some, some really compelling stuff, really interesting things to, to look at on the site. And that was huge because I think in, even even in the beta mode, I think we the beta, and the beta mode was actually longer than it should have been. It was probably like eight months or something private <laughs> and mm-hmm. people got used to that. And I think it would seem like a safe space to upload things that you might not upload to public. And but it got really cozy. And I think people, you know, the community really blossomed, blossomed there under that uh, format. So was it the case that you could only it was a private invitation system. You couldn't sign up for Dribble unless you or Rich invited somebody. Was it the case that you could only see the designs that people were posting if you were also a member? Or were the designs public for everybody to see? Yeah, so initially, for the first eight months or so, the public couldn't see it either. So it was only the people that were invited in. But we pretty quickly issued invitations to the existing members and let them choose you know, the next members, uh, like a family tree style thing. And and that and that continued on for forever. I mean, until very recently, I think. I remember this being controversial because a lot of people felt like it was very elitist and like they were yes. left out of this community and like how could you create a community for designers? But I am a great designer, yet I don't have an invite. And I remember like me visiting the site and not really caring <laughs> because I was just browsing. You know, at some point you made all the designs public and I was like, as long as I can look at people's designs and be inspired, like I don't need an invite. And I don't think I actually made a Dribble account for years, nor did I care yeah. or ask anybody for an invitation. It's a bummer. And actually, I, I really, it really bugs me that that was a perception. I understand why, too. I, I would probably think the same thing. Uh, like, mm-hmm. How elitist is that? You know, like, why can't? But, you know, it, it really was like 
initially it was necessary for us to cap the amount of traffic we had and, and scaling. We really wanted to, we really focused on like the quality of, of the community and the, and the content right from the start. And that was one way to ensure that it didn't get out of control. So the, the main benefit of having this sort of invite system is that number one, you mentioned that you and Rich had full-time jobs at the time. Like you're working on Dribble on the side. You don't necessarily have time to support tons and tons and tons of people coming to your website. And number two, like these quality controls. You invited designers who you actually looked up to. You wanted to see what they're working on. Like these are actually good designers. And if you start with these great designers and then only allow them to invite people, then they're going to invite great designers too. And so, you know, instead of having a website where anyone can come and just post stuff that quite frankly, no one wants to look at, you're kind of guaranteed to get stuff that people really want to look at and you're kind of starting at a high point. So what do you think accounted for the the fact that it was growing hand over fist? Because yeah, I mean, if you're putting up limits to how people, how many people can get in, you know, maybe that does create some buzz and does create some desire to get in. But like, why were so many designers joining your community? And I ask this because lots of other people today are trying to start websites and social networks and communities. Yeah. And they're having a lot of trouble getting people to care at all. I think part of it was timing. Part of it was, for whatever reason, Dribble became a great place to find people, to hire people. Even very early on, like designers sharing their work, it became, it wasn't officially a portfolio at the time, but it, it really became that. It became almost better than a portfolio because it was more up to date it, and the, you know, the visibility of it was, was high. And I think the quality of it was high. It becoming a great resource to find designers to hire was a, was a big factor and, and still is. I think we had a lot of accounts that, would get a ton of work from just from dribble alone and became known. Right. So for a designer that's looking to get work, you know, that's the place you wanted to be and you wanted to get on there. And that created more demand for getting on the site and the the sort of the cycle continues. There's also, I said, I mentioned timing. I think timing is, is a, a part of it because when it started, there was Twitter and Flickr and, Instagram wasn't really around at that point. In fact, the it's funny the founders used Dribble early on. I remember Kevin and Mike being on Dribble, and I they think they actually mentioned this in an interview that they used Dribble early on to find people to beta test Instagram with and everything. So there's like a connection there somehow. I found a quote from either you or Rich. Uh, it says this from both of you, actually, on this website, and it says <laughs> it's, it's an article on making a successful community, and it says focus on the problem first. And then worry about the solution, and then worry about the value that you bring, and then worry about profit, and try to make a pass through the sequence sooner rather than later. So I know a lot about you know the problems that Dribble's solving for people and the solutions you've chosen and how that you know people find it valuable. Uh, how did you actually profit from Dribble? You know, how did you guys keep the lights on and get to the point where you could quit your jobs? I mean, early on it was um, advertising. It started with advertising, and at the time, ads were could be lucrative i mean so we we joined we first we started selling them ourselves but then we joined the deck which was um jim kudal's yeah it was everywhere 37 signals was on it i think a list apart was on it yeah yes and it was like a community of or a collective of like-minded websites and run by jim kudal and we owe a lot to to jim for those early years because that kept the lights on honestly like initially because we had a lot of traffic and we were pumping a lot of traffic through that. So that that worked for a long time, but 
pretty quickly we realized people, like I mentioned before, people were getting work on the site and people were wanting to hire people and people were getting hired through it. And so we realized jobs was, was something, it was a natural thing to add. It's funny. People were using the screenshot to make a job ad <laughs> and then they would upload it <laughs> so that the job ad would be in there. We're like, oh yeah, of course we have to create a place for this, an official place for this. And so uh, that was another example of like the community just, that was something they did and we wanted to create a bucket for it. That became our primary revenue source was job ads, you know, job ads and advertising initially. And then later we added pro accounts, which was big too. I mean, I think people probably have had mixed mixed results with that sometimes, but we had a good result with it. Cause I think we had a lot, we built up a lot of goodwill before we launched pro accounts. We had a lot of goodwill with the community. People loved the site. They were getting work from it. They were finding inspiration there and it was free and they were f- perfectly happy giving us $20 a year. That's what it was like to, to use the website. And, and some, a lot of people we would hear like, I don't even need the features that you're offering. I just want to give you the, the 20 bucks because I, you know, I made a hundred grand last year from <laughs> referrals or whatever it was. So that helped too. So it was a combination of that, like pro accounts and, and later team accounts, but w- w- for companies, but pro accounts and advertising and job, job listings. Was there any one revenue stream that just outshone all the others? Or did you guys have this like, you know, sort of holy grail of like, everything seems to be working you know, more or less equally, kind of like LinkedIn has, where like they have a lot of redundancy and it's not that like yeah. Google, all of their eggs are in one advertising basket. It, it was definitely jobs was the top one for sure. I think jobs and, and, and then advertising, advertising slowly kind of disappeared. You know, the deck closed down. It, it just kind of tanked, like just in general, it tanked. And so that was replaced by, you know, some partnerships and, you know, we started to do events and things and that, that didn't pull in a, a ton really it's more about outreach but people that are hiring those are those are the people with with money uh, <laughs> to put it bluntly like they the people that need to hire a, a designer creative person the, those are the people with the money and and it actually it felt right to charge those people rather than the designers you know who are actually creating the the community and they're creating the work that makes it all work you know so pretty consistent that i talk to founders and the companies that are doing the best financially are the ones who are charging the people who have the most money (laughs) and they're charging (laughs) for the things where the most money changes hands and so it's not at all surprising that you'd be making you know a decent check of change and dribble charging companies to post job ads because companies have a lot of money and they spend a lot of money on hiring absolutely how did it feel like on a personal level to be and to look up, you know, five, six years later and be like, wow, I'm running like the largest community of designers online. Because a lot of times people start a business and you think, okay, well, maybe the business will make me money and maybe it'll, you know, help me quit my job and I can do what I love. But like often, depending on the type of business you run, there's all sorts of ancillary, like unexpected benefits or worries and stresses. So what's it like to kind of sit atop this mm-hmm. huge worldwide community? Terrifying. Um, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> like if I'm going to be honest really scary i'll be honest and say like it, it it was an interesting place to be because i felt like an equal in terms of i, I was a designer I, you know i kind of lived that world before dribble and i just wanted to do everything t- to protect the community and anything that felt weird or that we were you know felt like we were taking advantage of 
the designer, you know, I just was sort of repelled by. And um, sometimes that doesn't make the best business sense, you know, like if, if I was like an actual business person, maybe that we could have monetized it differently or, you know, made some kind of deal or whatever that would have been financially better. Well, it is kind of a terrifying thing that I think anyone who builds something successful has to deal with. Because, you know, yesterday you didn't have this thing and you could dream about having it, but you don't have it. And then today you have this amazing thing and it's like, on one hand, you want to celebrate, but on the other hand, you're like, how do I not mess this up? Suddenly I have a lot that I can lose. I have a lot exactly. that can go downhill. And like, that's stressful. So was it a relief at some point to to sell Dribble and to be able to move on eventually to, to newer and different things? Yeah, bittersweet, but yes, because of those things that I, I realized that I, I couldn't, I wasn't just, I wasn't the right person to, I wasn't a good manager. It's terrible manager. I'm not good at delegating. I, I like to work by myself and <laughs> all the things that are just, just the opposite of what you want for <laughs> leading a growing company, you know, or just wasn't equipped for it. wasn't wired for, for that. At the same time, it's weird because you spend so long building this thing and then you kind of have to let go of it. And, um, that's really difficult too. the other side of it. What are you up to now? You know, when you build something that's this world changing and this big and this public, and you've kind of got that under your belt and now you're a free man, so to speak, you can do whatever you want under the sun. Yeah. What, what do you spend your time doing and how do you figure out how to spend your time doing things? Yeah. Good question. Cause it, it, that's been a journey in itself. I realized that, having yeah having that opportunity okay now do whatever you want you know what is that you know it's been kind of a <laughs> it's been an evolution in a way i started like you know toward the end of dribble i started just wanting to make stuff again like just make physical things like i always love making you know we talked about t-shirts earlier but t-shirts and just designing i just wanted to, to design things to people could buy so i started doing that and uh and then i i finally got back to writing a little bit more and self-published a book about thoughts about all the stuff we're talking about actually about the, the the journey of dribble and what i learned from that and then you know the pandemic came and i i spent that time learning how to make fonts <laughs> so like total kind of 180 there but i've always been interested in fonts and and wanting to learn how to make them properly and and so i did and then took that journey and put that into a book about 20 things I learned about making fonts and that's actually just an just available for, for pre-order now so that's what I've been working on this year and that comes out soon and, and I I think the font thing's interesting because it's contained like the problems you need to solve are so contained they're they're just these lines in front of you <laughs> right and uh and that's kind of my my speed these days in terms of create creating and I think doing that as opposed to worrying about much deeper larger problems is it feels good to be focused on something so so specific <laughs> well that's like it's a telling thing that um you know often like a founder will look at uh, a mistake that another founder made they'll say oh you know like you know facebook's code base was a mess early on like i've got to i want to avoid that mistake yeah. and make sure my code base isn't a mess you know and it's like well that might be the wrong way to think about it right maybe you think about it in the opposite way which is like this company became very huge and successful despite having this problem so perhaps like solving this problem is not the most yes. important thing, you know, yes. Dribble became like a world leading community, uh, despite the fact that you were super focused on like the details and the logo and your t-shirt and like this like craftsmanship of like getting the design just mm. right. 
And like, maybe that's not a problem. You know, maybe that was actually a boon for you. And maybe there's something about like that attention to care and detail that like resonated with other designers. And so, you know, maybe um, <laughs> you're not the world's most stereotypical manager or CEO, but like something about what you did clearly worked or at the very least mm. wasn't a hindrance into your, your overall sort of growth. But it's sort of a tradition on this show that I, I sort of close out the episodes by asking, you know, what are your takeaways? A lot of people listening are like brand new founders. They are people who are considering becoming founders for the first time. They have no idea what they're doing. They've never been through the process. Uh, and here you are. You have this like amazing story. You've been through so much. What's something that you think they could take away from your journey? And it doesn't have to be the most important thing. It could be any random thing that you think they might not be considering. Surrounding yourself with 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 people that you like to be with, I think is, is a, is a big one because if everything goes well, you're going to spend a lot of time with those people. And I love that advice because I think there's like this sort of constant battle between like the external validation. Like I want to build something that's successful that people will recognize me for that makes me a lot of money. I just want to be seen as like a success and the internal validation, which is like, I'm surrounded by people who I like and I love my day to day life. And a lot of people find that internal validation but feel like something's missing because they don't have like the external validation. And they don't really appreciate like <laughs> you can get rich or build something successful and be famous but really just hate your day-to-day -day life because you haven't done these things like surround yourself with people that you like. And like at the end of the day like that's what counts. You know, the other stuff totally. is very fleeting. And it's a, it's a cliche at this point. Everyone has heard this a million times and to some degree like, maybe they have to experience it for themselves. But I would I would second your advice and say like hey, if you're out there <laughs> making this choice Err on the side of making sure your day-to-day -day life is great. Err on the side of making sure that you're healthy, that you have good relationships, that you're surrounded by people that you love. And hopefully, you know, you can take Dan's advice and, and do just that. So, Dan, thanks to Tom for coming on the show and sharing your story. Can you let people know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to online nowadays with Simple Bits and your fonts and your, and your books as well? Yeah, you can find me. Uh, Simplebits.com is, uh, you know, my shop. So everything that that uh, the books and fonts and everything is on there. And, um, and then I'm simple bits on Twitter and Instagram. And those are two channels that I'm probably publishing the most on. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. So thanks. All right. Thanks again, Dan. <laughs>